Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. William Caffaro for a conversation about commerce in the 13th and 14th centuries in Florence. Dr. Caffaro is Gertrude Conaway Vanderbilt Professor of History. He's Director and Professor of Classical and Mediterranean Studies, and he's also Director of Economics and History Program in the Department of History at Vanderbilt University, which is based in the U.S. He's the author of a number of publications over his career, including the book Petrarch's War, Florence and the Black Death in Context, which was published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome to the call, Bill. Thank you, Andrew. It's nice to see you. It's nice to see you as well. Okay. Um, so, Florence, can you, let's start with a uh, geographical question to start the conversation. Can you describe in the 13th and 14th centuries what um, Florence would have been demarcated to geographically? Well, it's an interesting question because from the perspective of, of economy, it's actually not on the sea, which is what most uh, commercial states are, like Genoa and like Venice. Um, it's inland, and it's not on a major highway or road in the Middle Ages. So, you know, there is one very important road that goes all the way to France. It's not on that road either. So it's kind of inland, north central Europe, uh, north central Italy. Um, but it's in a position, actually, where it has the, uh, the um, mountains just above it on the way into it, which makes it difficult to come in. Um, and then it has a plain below it, which makes it kind of easy to get out of. But from a commercial perspective, its location is not advantageous. Okay. In the 13th and 14th centuries, and if it changes at all, please uh, cite it, um, what would the governance structure have been in this period of time? Yeah, that's a good, another good question. It was a republic at a time when much of north central uh, Italy were, in fact, uh, lordships. And a lordship would be effectively a single entity, a single person who takes charge of government. Um, and whether legitimately or illegitimately. And then um, a, a republic is one in which the officials are elected, but we have to be careful with the term election because that meant a very small group of people um, who were citizens who were male. Um, and so, but it was a republic insofar as that it was run by a group called the priors, whose numbers change over the years. And the priors were elected um, and chosen. This is true also of Venice and Siena and, uh, and several other uh, places that are notoriously republics. But as I said, much of Italy is actually in the hands of lords, and these lords keep changing. Florence is stable insofar as that it continues to have priors until the 16th century. Okay. Like Dukedom. <laughs> okay. And um, I, know, I know in Venice, um, uh, they had at some point, could have been during this period of, of time, um, Doges, uh, basically a, like an Italian uh, form of a duke. Uh, did is is that the same thing as a as a prior, or are they different? It, and did Doges exist in uh, Florence at all in these no, couple centuries? 
Yeah, no, excellent question too. I mean, no, there is no such thing as a doge, but what's curious, I mean, it's always the priors, they're always elected, so it remains truly a republic um, in that regard, more so in some sense than, than, than in other places. But what's characteristic about uh, Florence that's a bit unusual is that when there are periods of real crisis, they sometimes hand over the reins of government to a strong man. It's not the equivalent of a doge. A doge is a very legitimate part of the Venetian uh, government and, and its tradition. But what Florence does, like in 1342-43, uh, it hands over the government to, you know, uh, a lord who, and this is in the middle of a crisis of a war and so on. So there are occasionally times when Florence is being ruled by a kind of an individual, but that's in conjunction with the priors who allow this to happen. And almost invariably, or in the cases I can think of, the two famous cases, the person who is this lord is thrown out of the city. <laughs> And reviled after that for whatever reasons, but in two cases during the, during uh, times when they were at war, they 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 gave their government over to a, to a strongman. Okay, so when there isn't um, one person ruling over a, a given period of time, the uh, the position the prior is elected. Is that the idea? Yeah, and, and there are there are several priors, and the numbers change from from different eras. You know, there could be six priors and then nine priors at different times. But there are a number of priors, and they usually represent different parts of the city, different neighborhoods of the city. Okay, and so I mean, again, you know, sometimes American scholars, uh, North American scholars, kind of overemphasize kind of democratic aspect, aspects of this, and there's been a fight whether that's democratic or that's oligarchic. You know, because the people who are priors are usually not from the lower part of society. But nevertheless, there is this kind of, you know, elective aspect to it. And there is a sharing of power with the priors being the executives. And those below them are a number of assemblies that have various uh, constitutions, usually being represented by by uh, the guilds that run the city. You know, the, the different guild, the guild of the merchants, the guilds of the... Um, you know, various uh, Florence is like all cities is composed of a series of, of, of guilds for different different jobs. You know, those who make wood I mean, or, or you know create, create uh, stone from, from 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 raw material and so on. I mean, those those type of jobs. Okay, interesting. So, so to clarify, then um, uh, when priors existed, that wasn't one um, position. Um, at a time, but several that was spread out throughout the city. Is that correct? Yeah, it was just that there were a number of people who were elected to that office. And they came usually from different parts of the city. The city in, 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 in the early days was divided into four basic neighborhoods. And then there were kind of sort of divisions within that as well. But that's how they often did things. They divided things, even any office, any sort of executive power, anything that they might call together, usually uh, the, the, the representation is taken from various parts of the city. Um, okay. And I know we're spending um, quite a bit of time on the governance, but I'm going somewhere with, with this that I want to understand better. So the, so the priors, what's known about the typical prior from a... Um, a uh, background, uh, a, a career or professional background perspective. Were these typically merchants? Were they um, were they not merchants? Like like what's what's known about the typical profile of a prior? And what I'm kind of going with, I'm not, I'm trying not to ask a leading question, but I guess we're kind of going there. Is were these um, 
wealthy business individuals or uh, was that somewhat indifferent when you look at all the different priors over the years in these uh, couple centuries? That's a really good question. And I can tell you that the answer for that, for the period of the 13th century and the 14th century, we really don't know a great deal about the backgrounds of them. For example, one of the priors at the very beginning, at the end of the 13th century and in the beginning of the 14th century, is Dante, the great poet. Now, what's his background exactly? Well, there's been a lot of discussion about what his background is. You know, is what 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 is his family? I mean, he makes claims about his family, but are those claims true? And I can tell you right now, there's a large discussion going on about precisely where he is, where he was. Now, again, I would I would exclude uh, the rabble from being priors, except in a very brief period of time in 1378, when there was a social revolution after the Black Death. But, um, but generally speaking, we, we assume that there are people of substance, but that they change, you know, uh, and that, you know, depending on, you know, the era, they may be people of higher status, they may be people of lower status. The thing you should know is that in the late 1300, well, the late 13th century, Florence actually put in ordinances of justice, which essentially removed the nobles from, uh, from, a, Allow uh, from from any right to participate in in, in, in in the government on an executive level. Um, so the government is run by the so-called people, and that would probably be more the merchant class, um, both in the 13th century. The other thing, Andrew, just very quickly, is that mm-hmm. what you have we got to remember that you know the things it, 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 these different cities are called communes. And now we have a very different understanding of the word commune today than they did back then. But they were basically groups of, you know, aggregates of people who govern themselves, you know. And in the, in the, if we go early into the 13th century, it's not even clear that Florence had priors. If you go further back into the 12th century, we think maybe they had, you know, uh, different consuls, which sort of evokes the ancient Roman period. But what, what, what we're seeing in the 13th and 14th century is the emergence of these priors. And... We see them essentially, by the time of Dante for sure, as members of the merchant class, and that could be someone who is quite rich, or that could be someone who is less so. No, um, but um, but it's not. You know, it, the interesting thing is that most of the studies about who they exactly are are for the 15th century. Okay, okay. So the um, most accounts, based on my understanding, um, if someone was to pe- peg um, the Renaissance period starting. And I know um, that can be a bit arbitrary, but uh, it, it's oftentimes cited in starting in the uh, 14th century. So we're chatting about the 13th and 14th century today. Um, and if you think it starts in a different time period, this is, you know, this is the platform to, to, to mention it. Um, but uh, so presuming that, um, how would you contrast at a high level the difference uh, of Florence's economy in the um the 13th century versus the 14th century you know andrew that's the million dollar question (laughs) and that's actually been the focus of my whole career in one way or another Uh, because the issue is you know from a periodization perspective right um when did the middle ages end Hmm. and if you're doing italy it becomes really problematic because dante is he a medieval figure or is he a renaissance figure i mean he writes Hmm. in the vernacular 
He basically mm. codifies the Florentine vernacular, the Italian vernacular, right? Effectively, right? So who is he? A Renaissance figure? Is he a medieval person? He doesn't seem typically medieval, right? Mm. And so there's this great mixed metaphor that, you know, with one, he had one foot in the Middle Ages and with the other he saluted the rising star of the Renaissance. Mm. I mean, so it's been a, it's been a constant battle uh, among scholars when exactly the Renaissance occurs and what's the difference between medieval Italy and Renaissance Italy. And it does play out in Italy because the, the 1300s, the time of Dante, you know, Dante is followed by Petrarch, who's, you know, a contemporary Boccaccio. So uh, the 1300s, all the way up to about 1378. So, I mean, they really are, I mean, you've got the Black Death stuck in there. And yet you have this you know, the, the great writers and, and some of the great artwork that occurring is just at that particular period. So um, one of the issues has been um, the change in the economy as a result, right? I mean, it's a periodization issue. The medi medieval period seems to evoke backwardness to most people, which makes sense. And the Renaissance seems to evoke, you know, light and, and uh, you know, uh, achievements, intellectual and cultural and so on. And so the pr presupposition was always that the middle, middle age is probably, you know, just in the earlier period, the economy was not quite as good as it was in the later period of the Renaissance. You know, cultural flourishing, consumerism and so on would bespeak actually a good economy. The problem is, um, as far as we can tell, Florence really takes off in the late 13th century economically. And then what happens when you have a black death in the middle of the 14th century, which in Florence's case may have eliminated about half of the population of its town, you know? And so that's been the great debate. And this is a debate that goes back to the 1950s. And I went to a graduate school where the debate began. So my professors uh, were always asking precisely the question you asked. I mean, uh, but they would ask it with a twist, you know. It would seem to me as if what was considered medieval Italy was far, and not just Florence, was far more commercially dynamic than what came after. So how can we call one the Renaissance? And what's the relationship between that, you know, lack of economic growth in the immediate aftermath and a cultural outpouring, which is a universal question, right? I mean, so... Yeah, so let's let's talk let's talk more about this then. Um, so the you mentioned that scholars believe the economy in Florence took off. I believe you used a, that phrase or a phrase like that in the late thirteenth uh, century. So what 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 is what is a what was it about the late thirteenth century that has people that have studied this topic quite a bit believe that's when it's taking off well what happens at that time is like one has to remember this is the whole period of sort of like from 1000 to 1300 is often referred to by economic historians like myself as the commercial revolution and italy is in the forefront of like getting involved in long distance commerce short distance commerce and so on and by the time we get to the late uh 13th century florence has developed into a banking and a wool making powerhouse Okay, and now how it actually did that and how it outflanked its competition because uh, a neighboring city like Siena was also involved in banking um, in the 13th century, but it seems as if Florence replaces it. And then Florence emerges with what they call the super banks in the 13th century, in the late 13th century in particular. Uh, and these are the called, this is the, the Bardi Bank, the Peruzzi Bank, and the Acciaioli, and any sort of general reading 
about this period from an economic perspective. They'll talk about these banks as the super companies of the Middle Ages. They had um, branches of these banks all over Europe, the known parts of Europe. There is one in London, in Bruges, in, in Paris, but also on Rhodes and Cyprus and in the Western Mediterranean, Majorca and places like that, and even Northern Africa, which is Muslim at this time. So the Florentines seem to really start moving economically as a result of this banking empire that they create. And they, tag, they, they, they peg this uh, banking empire in large part also to a relationship with the Pope who lives in Rome at this time. And so the Pope collects money from all over. Um, uh, Christendom, and to be his own banker, which the Florentines seem to have managed to do by the late uh, 14th century, makes them hyper rich, you know. And along with that, and, I, and this is too long a, a, an answer for this, but these banks are not typical banks like you and I go to where you put your money in as a deposit. These banks were actually created to help commerce across long distance and to allow the Pope to remit funds back to him in Rome. So this was a large network that supported also the production of wool cloth by the Florentines. They would, they would, they would take wool and they would, they would um, clean it in the Arno River, and then they would produce with, with, with expensive dyes some of the most beautiful wool cloth that the Middle Ages knew, and they would sell it in these various places where they had branches. So their banking operation and their wool cloth operation go hand in hand. And, and Andrew, I would only point out that when you have a wool cloth business, what makes it so valuable, it's like, like today with manufacturing, it employs a lot of people. I mean, banking itself, you know, if you've got a branch in a different place, well, that helps the mega rich, uh, one would imagine, or, or, you know, the people with money, the high, high, high end merchants. But then the wool cloth involves 26 steps to make a piece of wool cloth that you sell. And those steps involve a lot of people in the city. So people see the wealth in the 13th century trickling down to you know, the city itself and making it very different from those around it, like Pisa, which lives by trade, or Siena, which used to live by banking but never was able to make a wool cloth business because it has no river to clean wool <laughs> you know, that goes through the city. Um, and Dante even mocked Siena because of this. But anyway, so I mean, this is this is how they they move. Then the, when we get to the 14th century, it becomes dicey only in so far as that the population suddenly decreases. And as we've seen now in a world of a pandemic, shouldn't that inhibit trade? No, I mean merchants may not understand um, the the essence of contagion uh, or anyone at that time. But people who travel long distances are more likely to sick, get sick and die. So the presumption is that the pandemic in the first instance probably cut down on trade, um, which was Lawrence's lifeblood. So, um, okay. and then, I mean, we, we, we can talk about how historians now have said, well, yeah, that maybe trade was hurt, but then local consumption for people now who have money that didn't have it before, you know, people die and disappear, but money doesn't go anywhere. And if you've accumulated great wealth, it may end up in the hands of people who didn't have it before. And then you have something that historians call conspicuous consumption. And conspicuous consumption can be then elided with the notion of renaissance, the idea of building a beautiful building, the idea of, you know, of, of, of trying to perfect humankind in the face of all this death. I don't know if that, that makes sense, but I mean, that's how people have perceived it. And it's a, it is a fascinating question, um, mm -hmm. you know? Um, yeah, I'm glad you expanded on on these points. Um, 
And uh, to go back to the wool for, for a moment, um, I want to make a comment. I, I had a very, coincidentally, very excellent uh, conversation with Dr. Edward, Edward Muir uh, yesterday. So uh, chronologically, don't know if the episode will have published by the time this episode publishes, but it's going to get published at, at, at some point. And a comment that he made about wool, and we're talking Venice, actually, at that point in time. So Venice in the, uh, the Renaissance um, period. And I'm paraphrasing, but I think this is um, accurate. Um, he mentioned that there is high profit margin in wool as well. So that could be another reason why that uh, helped the, um, uh, an economy. If, if an economy was centralized as, as in manufacturing wool as one of its uh, products. Yeah, he's very right about that. There is a high profit margin on it. And in fact, you know, we know that Florentine wool makes it all the way east. It's one of the most valuable things they're able to sell in a market, by the way, where in, in the period that we're talking about, um, it still is the case that there are a lot of very valuable goods coming out of the east. That's where the spices come from. And the Florentines, you know, uh, need something uh, of, 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 of value to offer offer people from uh, so we, I, we know I mean if we were to go on and talk about the Medici archive that Harvard University has which is for a later period you would see clearly that the the Florentines at that point and we don't know for sure in an earlier point are actually on the Silk Road selling those wool cloths and the colors of them are very bright and I mean and they also they, they have different types of cloth that they make in Florence some of its high-end brocade with gold in it, with extremely expensive dyes. So the profit margin, is, as Ed says, actually, is, is quite high on that. Absolutely. I mean, remember, we're talking about a medieval world where clothes are an essential item, right? I mean, it's not like there are mm -hmm. other, so many other commodities. I mean, clothes is big business. Uh, vice versa. So the, so the actual dyes, were the dyes being sourced... Uh, locally, or were they being imported from somewhere like the east, from like the Levant region or the Arab region? Is there anything known about where they were getting the dyes from? Yeah, exactly. We know a lot about where they were getting the dyes from, and they were getting the dyes from the eastern part of the, exactly what you said, from the mm. Levant. I mean, the Caspian Sea, too, is another place. There's this dried insect um, that they make, Kermesia um, is the Italian term from the Middle Ages, um, which is um, crimson which is, you know, mm -hmm. you've noticed that cardinals often are wearing red. Well, mm -hmm. red is actually a very expensive dye, and it's imported all the way from, from the Crimea and from the Caspian. Um, and so, yeah, the dyes actually are largely not indigenous, although if you make something blue, um, uh, this is more than you want to know, but you would urinate into a vat in addition to try and make mm -hmm. that color, and that could be made locally. Um, but that's not necessarily particularly expensive. But yes, absolutely, a lot of this was import. And, and it's surprising how far afield Florence is able to go at such an early period. I mean, I guess people are less surprised by Venice because it's a maritime republic, right? But Florence is inland, by the way, you know? But it still manages. It doesn't have its own fleet, like, uh, you know, or it, it has some ships, but it hires them out. But it doesn't have a fleet in the sense that the Venetians do. So, and the Venetians are all over the East, and they've been trading with them since the time of the uh, Crusades. So, it's it's um, which which is still 13th century. Um, so, anyhow, I mean, yeah, that, that that's that's a good thing. There, there there is no charge for urinating unless you're in a country or a region in the Mediterranean where you pay a fee to go into the stall. <laughs> And I've paid that. <laughs> so have I. <laughs> gladly. Gladly sometimes. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs>
we were extortionate, we'd still pay it. <laughs> okay, so um, let's put the straight face back on. <laughs> so, so um, uh, back to banking for a moment. Um, you mentioned that, um, and, and I'm I'm paraphrasing, uh, but it, it sounded like there was a confidence level that the uh, the banking system in in uh, Florence brought to the sector. If you have the Pope down in Rome you know, uh, moving his funds in some way through, through Florence or they're holding the funds. So there's a confidence level. Do you know, do you know if they got into, uh, lending money at all at an, yeah. with the way lending with an interest rate, obviously, so that they're generating profits from the, um, from that product? Well, I just, I would just qualify to the statement that, you know, the Pope was in Rome until 1309 and then he moved to Avignon. As far as the Florentines were concerned, that didn't make much of a difference as far as their business was concerned with him because Avignon was also, you know, related to Naples and, and it's a complicated thing, but nevertheless, um, yeah, so, um, that's, okay. that, that's, uh, okay. critical, but, uh, and we're sorry, far, where's, yeah. where's for clarification, where's Avignon? And Avignon is just north, um, of, of, of Italy, just across the Alps on, on, on the Western side. So it's in Provence in the general area of Provence, which is also a part of the patrimony of the people who are running Naples at this time. Uh, it's a again, it's a complicated thing, but uh, but it also explains why the Italian, why the Veni uh, excuse me, the, the Florentines are so close to the Neapolitans at this time as well. There's a kind of a, you know, and they're speaking French in Naples, by the mm. way, at this time. You know, the vernacular there hasn't quite formed yet. But to get to the question of lending, yeah, mm -hmm. they lent money. They lent money to the Pope with the knowledge that they were probably not going to get paid back, which is usually what happened when you lent to the Pope. Uh, which I can mention why in a second. I mean, I mean, I'll say it right now. One of the reasons you lend to a pope, knowing full well that he's not going to pay you back, most likely, when he wants to go on crusade or do something like that, you know, is because that's the price of operating in his market. You can't say no. And it, it was one of the things that bugs me historically is that I've, I've, I've people, I've had people ask me, you know, why would you make such a, a dumb loan? Well, you can't use you, you. You don't have access to a market unless you have access to a person especially when that person is the Pope, right? So you, you know you're going to lose money most likely, but you hope he doesn't ask for too much. And so uh, that's one way. But there was also something, uh, Andrew, called a bill of exchange. And this was a, mm -hmm. a financial instrument whereby these banks could charge interest on loans, but they could somehow launder it in a way that it gets lost in the interest rate between one country and another country, if that makes any sense. Okay? So the idea is usury... Asking for um, return on a loan is illegal, but mm. these banks found ways around it. Obviously, I know my first lecture I ever gave was on a bank, uh, the Spinelli Bank, and someone said to me, who was an American, is how in the world did they make money when usury is illegal? Well, they make money uh, by, by, in fact, using this kind of bill of exchange, which is a way of lending money, but also getting interest. But the key thing is that you lend it in one currency and it's repaid in another currency. And so lost in the exchange rate change is the actual amount of interest you've taken. Okay, that's one way. Um, the other way is that if you're servicing the Pope, the Pope finds ways to get you money in, in different ways. For instance, the Pope also has a series of taxes that he demands from his people. And he could say, hey, why don't you collect those taxes for me and you can get a cut of those. You know, and there's a way. So I mean, the idea of a, like a banker on the surface of it shouldn't be able to make money through loans, uh, and but they do, um, and, and they do loan money. They loan money to to um, monarchs as well, and that's another way of getting access to their market. One of the things the Florentine bankers do is they lend money to English kings, 
And it's really actually when the Hundred Years War breaks out in England that those kings become insolvent. They don't pay back their um, Florentine bankers. And that's one of the reasons that's been adduced for why Florentine banks go out of business in the 1340s. Um, the start of the Hundred Years' War was in 1337, and uh, Edward, the king, um, had lent, he borrowed a lot of money from his Italian bankers, and he was not able to pay them back. Uh, now revisionists would say that that's not the only reason why those banks went under, and I agree with those revisionists. But still, the, the, the original question, did they lend money? Yes, they did, but they disguised interest as much as possible. Okay. Um, is there anything in the records about what constituted usury? So from a, a simple percentage perspective on an annualized loan, is that known at all? Uh, at what point oh, yeah. it became illegal as a percentage? Yeah, yeah. No, that's part of a whole discourse. You know, funny thing about what I do is that there are people who talk about economic theory, and they often talk about what monks say about this and what the church says about this. And the church doesn't speak in one voice on this issue, right? Um, and so, um, and then there's also what merchants actually do, you know? And I'm one of those people who believe that merchants actually were not the type that simply ignored these restrictions. Um, they actually, you know, work with them and, and, and in fact were not irreligious, which is kind of like the old way of pursue, perceiving them, you know, sort of like they were modern people. They didn't care about these rules. But, you know, the, the, the church promulgated various things about usury and there was a, a, a ban on it. But Thomas Aquinas, who lived, you know, until uh, 1274, I mean, he wrote comprehensively on so many different Christian things. And one of the things he did is he wrote about usury and he seemed to open up a possibility of actually gaining some kind of return based on notions of risk, you know, and that's a, like, that's a very a big topic right now, uh, the notion of risk and whether that would allow people to then, you know, uh, uh, ask for for um, for 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 interest, um, but but by and large, you know, the simple thing is to say that in the Middle Ages, usury was prevented not only in Christian doctrine going to the Bible, but also in Islamic doctrine and also in Jewish doctrine. That it was no good, okay. But you could do it to the other guy. You know, in other words, you don't do it among Christians, you don't do it among Jews, and you don't do it among uh, Muslims. But uh, if you're Jewish, you could say do it, do it to a Christian, Christian presumably uh, to someone who's Jewish, and so on. Uh, but, but at any rate, I mean, the, the rules generally pre prevented it, but it's been said that as the 13th and 14th century progressed, there's a kind of a loosening of these rules. And, and I, as I said, a lot of people look back at Thomas Aquinas's kind of um, open statement about kind of a possibility of gain if there is a risk involved. Um, was there, um, what, what do you, and it sounds like it, it cha changed over time and it may have depended on the, the, the faction uh, as well that um, was involved, but was there a, a percentage that, uh, and maybe it, you know, uh, a simple uh, answer can't be provided, but was there, a, was there a, a percentage that would have been, or a percentage range that would have been considered by most at that point usury in this period in Florence? Well, you know, what's interesting is, is that, um, you know, the government asks for loans from people and then offers them interest as well, which also is a topic of great discussion, whether that's permitted. 
And Florence comes up with a public debt in which, in fact, they charge interest. And the interest on those loans are generally about 5%. So I'm not entirely sure whether 5% is considered okay. I mean, I know that the return on loans sometimes to the state is actually higher than 5%, and, and it depends on circumstance. But I don't think there's an actual number. And then, as I said, what I think makes it very complicated for people like me who do both the economic business side and also do public finance is to see that you know there are these prohibitions against um, against charging interest. At the same time, there's also these people who are in fact from the state itself who are charging or, or are offering interest in order to get people to to lend them money so that they can let the state function properly, particularly in wars. Um, so um, it seems to me, though, the going rate, and I've worked on Siena as well there, was if you lent to the state, you generally got about 5 and perhaps as much as 10% back promised to you. Now, whether you actually got paid that money, mm. I can't tell you. Because mm. <laughs> you know, states run out of money, they make promises that they don't keep. Um, okay. Um, what was the level of uh, regulation um, as it pertains to commerce? in this period in Florence. Did um, regulatory bodies exist? I know, you know, probably nowhere near the degree we're talking about nowadays in places like America and Canada, etc. And, you know, in, in different countries in Europe. But um, was there was there a, a group or an organization regulating banks in in some way in Florence? Was there a group that was regulating, you know, we were just chatting about uh, loans that uh, may have been uh, too, considered too too high usury. Uh, was there a, a group that would have regulated that? What was the regulatory environment like in uh, Florence in this period? Yeah, that's a very good question too. I mean, the regulatory I and mean, people like to talk in terms of the mercancia, which is it, which is an outfit, a group, a part of government that oversaw international trade and often banking. There is a um, guild called the Arte del Cambio in Florence, mm -hmm. which is governs uh, bankers, uh, but curiously enough, it really doesn't quite um, govern the actions of international bankers so much. So there are regulatory commissions. The mercancia generally deals with disputes among merchants. And they could be merchants who are living in Florence and doing business, or they could be merchants in a, in a, in a, in a, in a foreign context too. I mean, so there are these regular, there are, there are, you can take a case before these bodies but one of the things, too, that I find most interesting, I think most scholars find most interesting, is also this notion of reprisal, which predates, I think, even the 13th century. It might go back even further, which is kind of like a, a general law that seems to be understood. And I'm no legal historian, so I apologize. But there's a sort of a general idea was that if a merchant in your city, um, well, no, look, uh, say a Florentine misbehaves uh, as a merchant and doesn't pay back what he owes somebody in Venice, Venice can launch a reprisal against Florence in which basically they won't let anybody do business <laughs> who is mm -hmm. Florentine as a result of that. And Florence is constantly in the 13th and 14th century launching these reprisals against other cities where they feel that their merchants have been treated badly. In other words, you, you pick on one of our guys, we'll pick on all of your guys, mm -hmm. you know? effectively is what happens. So, and that's not really a regulatory body. It's just a tradition in medieval law, which I would say someone who knows legal history would know where it came from. It probably goes way back. Um, but I know that it's used a great deal. I mean, and in fact, 
contemporary writers in the 14th century compare it to a species of war from one city to another. But that's a regular, I mean, it's a way of regulating the behavior of merchants, um, but not quite a, the mercancia um, is, is in an actual body, part of the Florentine government that, that for if you have a real dispute, um, and often this is how we know how international bankers are working, you know, when they bring suit against somebody else, often a co-citizen who might be a competitor in the market. Uh, but that is a regulatory commission. And they, 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 they I, and as far as I know, I mean, it's relatively effective. Okay. Yeah, I'm glad you went there with the example of one uh, area having a dispute with another because you have regulation, but then you also have in a society, how do you deal with disputes? Um, especially, right, if you're talking from a commercial uh, context. Um, okay, so let's go to coinage, and then let's work our way to wrapping up the uh, episode with some wind-up uh, questions. Um, so was coinage being used in Florence in the 13th and 14th century? Uh, if so, what was the, um, if you could describe it a little bit, including did it have a, did it have a, a moniker? What was its material? Um, what was what was its con confidence level, both domestically but also also outside of Florence, etc. Yeah, no, for, I mean, money was being used. The one thing I would say, though, is never forget that in the 13th and 14th century, people still paid a portion of what they owed, not only in coin but also in kind. So you might owe somebody something, and you might end up taking, you know, paying some of it in coins, which Florence had, uh, but also maybe some of it in grain. Yeah, like bartering. So, I mean, because a lot of Florentine legislation from this period has this thing where it says, must be paid in, 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 in numbered coins, which suggests that people don't necessarily pay in numbered coins. But Florence has, by the, by the 13th century, in the 13th century, it introduces a gold coin, the Florin. Mm. And they're on the vanguard of introducing that in the West. Genoa does, and then Venice does afterwards, the gold coin. So that by the late 13th century and into the 14th century, Florence is bimetallic. It has both gold and silver in circulation. Now, silver was part of the European economy forever. Goes back to Charlemagne, you know? And so if we're talking, say, you know, in, in the 14th century, what actual physical coins they have, we would say one would be the Florin, which was very, it, 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 was, it was kept it was never debased. And so the confidence in it internationally was great. Okay. And so, I mean, that and the Venetian ducat become kind of the international dollar, one scholar once called. So the dollar, the sort of the post-World War II dollar of Europe, you know, it becomes sort of the standard of payment throughout Europe, you know, the gold florin. Um, but it also has, Florence also has a silver currency. And the silver currency is broken into three basic types. Um, the grosso, which is the Italian word for big, which is basically, I'm holding my hand there, so basically a pretty big coin about this big made out of silver. Um, and then they have two other coins, one called the quattrino, which is a, um, a smaller coin than the grosso, and then there's the denaro. Um, and the denaro is, is basically what we would call a penny, okay? And the quattrino, just as the name would suggest, is like four pennies. And what, what, what um, the, the standard way of, of, of explaining money is that gold florins are generally the province of the bankers and the merchants that we were talking about, because that's an international currency and everybody loves gold, right? It's more valuable, mm -hmm. right? But people who say work in the wool cloth 
business, people who own the wool factories, those are the ones who are probably paying and receiving florins for, from various people for the exchange of their goods, whereas their workers are being paid in silver. So one's called, you know, the florin would be, you know, the, the international standard, which is respected throughout Europe. And the silver currency is what ordinary people would get. And exactly what they get, we don't really know, strangely enough, even though we have a lot of account books, which I could speak of in a minute if you'd like. But nevertheless, I mean, that money tends to be subject to debasement for a number of reasons. Okay. And so um, you can see a social cleavage here, right? I mean, if you have a lot of silver, um, well, then the price of, of silver goes down, right? If you have uh, a lot of gold, then the price of gold goes down. But there's a ratio between those two. I mean, whether Florence wants it or not, there is a, an exchange rate between the two. And as that fluctuates, obviously, you can see how social tensions can help arise from that. Because if gold is particularly strong, it helps international merchants who use that currency, right? Um, but if silver is particularly weak, which often happens when gold is very strong, um, it means that your wages now actually are worth less, right? So, um, so th that standard, I've, I've just been reading about this because I'm working on this particular issue. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this, 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 this is something that the state keeps a careful eye on, you know? I mean, and so who's in power has a lot to do. Like if those priors are really hyper, super big time merchants, they may, you know, they're never going to do anything to the gold coinage because they don't want to make, they want to make sure that that still has the integrity because if it doesn't, then the, the, their merchant class is going to be in trouble, right? But workers are constantly complaining about the fact that their coins become progressively debased. You know, this is the issue with, 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 with a society in which money has intrinsic value. Americans have trouble understanding this um, because we have a dollar, right? Just like the rest of the world uh, has, you know, uh, money that's paper, but they didn't have that then. So um, and sometimes, you know, uh, scholars of money, and that's really where I started as a, as, a, as a money person, as a math person, then a money person. Um, sometimes they talk about them in terms of, of color, yellow. Uh, which would be the gold coinage, white, which would be the um, silver coinage, if it's relatively pure, and then black. That would be the money that should have had silver in it, but somebody put mm -hmm. some other kind of uh, metal in it, and that's debased coin. Uh, mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, the, those are the, those are the, 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 so it sounds like free type, but essentially, Lawrence is bimetallic. It mm -hmm. has um, gold and it has silver. This isn't true, by the way, of contemporary, of 13th century, say, say England. It, it, it essentially uses um, uh, a silver. France uses silver. It's really not until the 14th century that either of those places mm -hmm. start producing gold, and that's a whole nother story, okay? But I mean, Florence, as I said, Genoa and Venice are on the vanguard of using Florence, and the Florin remains actually, I mean, and then, you know, as time goes on, we get to the 15th century, and they come up with different types of gold coins. They, they kind of add to the panoply of of, of, of Florin, but, but for the period that we're talking about, the Florin really is um, a, a very stable coin and, and very respected. And I, I would only add as well, if you go throughout Europe, many of the mint masters in various places of Europe are Florentines. The Florentines have a kind of reputation <laughs> for understanding money and then knowing how to make it too. And so, you know, the mint masters, for instance, in Hungary at this time, are um, the people who make, make the coins are, are Florentines. Um, 
So that's essentially, you know, it, it is a minor combat. I just so I do want I do want to point out because a lot of people um, wonder, you know, because it's so monetized, they talk about the monetization, they talk about numeracy as being part of the sort of aspects that make Florence so much different than other places. But in in all my research, I mean, I have found repeatedly that money is not used all the time. Sometimes, for instance, precious cloth is used instead of money. It kind of expands the money supply a bit. And remember, uh, you know, the banks that I talked about in Florence, they're not deposit banks. So they don't make bank money. So, you know, the amount of coin available will affect the economy. You know, it's not like there's sort of this extra credit that's being 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 extended like a modern bank might do. It's, it's, it's quite limited. Thank you, Bill. That was a very detailed answer. And uh, yeah, you unpacked a lot there around currency in Florence. Um, one of the things you mentioned was that uh, Florence and some other, it sounded like some other areas in Italy was ahead of places like France and England in adopting gold as, a, um, as one of the uh, forms of currency. Was there a practical reason for that at all in terms of do you know if um, Florence had more access to uh, gold suppliers or uh, gold mines, which is a form of suppliers, but you know, having more access to gold in their area? Do you know anything about that? Yeah, you know, that, that is a great question. And I would say this, I mean, again, this is, again, the sort of highly specific knowledge. Generally speaking, in the 13th and the 14th century, people believe that the, the gold supplies of Europe come from northern Africa or even from middle Africa, but come through northern Africa in what would be the luxury trade. So essentially, there's a lot of gold, like the old Byzantine Empire has gold in it as a currency at this time, you know, uh, uh, and, and also a lot of the Middle Eastern states, they're more actually financially advanced. So the fact that Italy trades with them, particularly the Venetians, the Genoese, and the Florentines, suggests that that's where the gold is coming from. Okay, it's actually a product of its international trade, and that would make it different from England and France insofar as that France and England are not really known for their international trading sector. And this could be, you know, Andrew, in part geographical, too, because remember, I mean, and it's, I'm speaking the, 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 the historian role, but in order to get to the uh, Crusades, which just precede this period, the Crusades, you know, started um, in the 12th century and they go on through the 13th century and kind of end at the period or are kind of still going on in the period that we're talking about. But how did these guys get there? How did these northern warriors get there? They went through Italy. And in the process, Italy kind of developed these commercial relations with these rich places, you know, Constantinople, which is Byzantine. They're Christian. Um, but they're not the right kind of Christian. But nevertheless, you know, they have these, I mean, uh, uh, Venice takes over Constantinople, and so does Pisa to a certain degree, right? And, 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 and back in 1204. So the thing is that it's the international trade of a place like Florence that allows it to have gold coins, or at least that's what we believe, okay? The other thing I would only add that is not in the books right now, which is something I'm working on, um, it's in a very specified literature, is that, you know, in the 14th century, um, the Hungarians developed gold mines, you know? And so there's another source. And what does Hungary have to do with Italy? Well, for the longest time, no one has said anything about this. But me reading the sources, it's clear that, that there's a very close connection because the um, Hungarians are active in Naples, trying to take over Naples 
from their cousins, effectively, who are the French Angevin family. This is a, a complicated thing and not worth it really going into. But the point is, they're investing a lot of money, a lot of gold money, into Naples, which is awfully close and deeply connected to uh, the Florentine economy. So I think that that will be another source of gold getting into the Florentine economy for a number of reasons. Because Florentine merchants are very active in Naples. I mean, they, I mean, they use Naples as kind of a place where they buy grain and they sell their wool, their wool cloth, you know? Um, so, I mean, there, there, there's a number of routes, but the traditional answer is usually that, you know, anybody, any, any um, place that is a kind of an international trading place, particularly with the eastern part of the Mediterranean, is likely to have gold come into their economy, you know? Uh, and that gold was probably originally farmed out somewhere near Timbuktu, by the way. And then on caravan routes going, you know, to virtually parts of northern Africa. And then Egypt, of course, is part of northern Africa. And it's a very wealthy area. I mean, it has, it's been, you know, it's a big city kind of a place. As opposed to these kind of, you know, you got to sort of reorient your way of looking at France and, 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 <laughs> and England at this time. They're, they're kind of relatively backward in terms of their economic development. But, but, you know, Italy juts out there, and it's easy for the Venetians to get on board their ships and go over to these places and, and trade them. The Florentines, when I mentioned those merchant banks, they have actual branches in places like Cyprus right across from Byzantium, right across roads, right across from these places. And so this international economy brings that money back and forth and, and, and makes them uh, more liquid, as it were, in terms of their... Um, financial assets that's that's the traditional way of looking at it okay um, okay uh closing question bill so getting to the end of the 14th century so a lot has happened over those couple centuries and we spoke about about a bunch of different things in this uh conversation you mentioned banking took off in florence wool manufacturing took off in florence um there's also um uh antithetically if we can use that term the Black Death uh, starts in the 14th um, century, which would have had um, uh, a, 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 an impact on the economy in some some way, and there would have been a lot of deaths. Um, how would you describe what the economy would have been like by the end of the 14th century in Florence? Yeah, again, that's a, that's a loaded question. I guess we don't know, and we have a disagreements about it. Um, I would say one thing that you may not um, think about, but I think about a lot, is that at the same time as there was the Black Death, there were continuous wars. The, the, uh, there was an uptick in warfare. And that has a lot to do with economy, too, because flows of money are going back and forth. And so, I mean, the traditional answer is, look, um, in the immediate aftermath of the Black Death, one imagines that the total production of, say, things like the wool cloth business go down. No? Um, and they do indeed, you know, and that international commerce is hurt, all right? But, um, but what other people have said too is let's point out that while international commerce may be somehow depressed by the late 14th century, there is also this kind of redistribution of money. The lower class people are asking for now higher wages because there are so much fewer of them. The aristocrats who own land now have to pay these people, whereas before they were serfs effectively and not really paid anything, right? And so what the traditional way of viewing it now, again, sort of in a generic way, is that the upper class that owns land, their land is not worth what it used to be. So they sort of get pushed down. Um, and that the lower class, which worked from, from wages, their wages go up. So that there's sort of like a 
kind of a, a growing middle class. Now, how you interpret that economically, Andrew, is depends on the person. And I, I would say that you know, um, you know, some people have said, as I, as I mentioned before, what this creates is kind of a parvenu class, which is probably the wrong term, but a parvenu class, essentially this new kind of wealth class that ends up wanting to show its you know, try to sort of remove the social barriers by extravagant expenditures. So, and there is evidence, in fact, that the Florentine economy sort of sort of evolves as a result of this Black Death and gets more involved, let's say, than whereas wool cloth may be not so profitable anymore because it. Remember, it it takes twenty six steps on a lot of people who aren't there anymore, right? So the whole system is more expensive, and the Florentines seem to go into different types of businesses like for example the silk cloth business which i've written about and 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 that requires a much fewer number of people and it's also silk is more expensive even than good cloth and so what they're doing is what a lot of people see as an inversion from an economy that was really very commercial and international to one that is more sort of involuted but more um to it to the extent that it's international it's now focusing on luxury goods and people are more who have survived are more interested in buying these luxury goods like silks for themselves to show that they're no longer a peasant. They don't dress like a peasant anymore. You dress like a, you know, like someone is a lord. And in fact, you know, the city itself puts in place sumptuary laws that say you can't you can't dress like that. That what the, what, what the city is trying to do, what most of Europe is trying to do, is put the genie back in the bottle. You know, you, you, we have a stratified society. There are lords, there are merchants, and then there are the peasants, right? But the Black Death changes the polarities, right? And what Europe is trying to do, kings, and in the cases of Florence, you know, you don't have kings, but you have, you know, legislative bodies, is let, let's get this back the way it used to be, because, you know, it's unseemly. It's not even the Christian way of thinking of things, because these are very Christian states, right? I mean, for what it's worth, you know? So it's a, it's a sort of, a, a sort of a, it, you know, these stations were sanctioned by God, and effectively what you're doing is kind, you know, trying to jump over them by, by conspicuous consumption. And people would say that then their houses become a kind of a, a, a form of conspicuous consumption. And those who survive want to sort of glorify the world. And so you can see how, you know, this, this notion of sort of like an international economy, yeah, well, maybe there are places in which it was hurt, but Florence seems to be responding with new things, like let's get into silk more mm -hmm. uh, than, 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 than cloth to make up for the loss. And also people within the community themselves and throughout Europe who have become more interested in luxury items as opposed to sort of everyday items because everyday items, mm -hmm. you know, there are fewer people to buy those things, but it seems as if, uh, one of the things that I always found interesting, and just, just silently said, mm -hmm. the consumption of things like alcohol seem to stay set, steady, mm -hmm. regardless, because we, we have a lot of, like the prices of wine are about as easy to find as the prices of grain, you know? And so, you know, we have, the price of wine doesn't seem to actually move at all from what I've seen. Uh, in Florence, which tells you that people who are surviving are drinking mm. <laughs> quite a bit, which is not unlike what's happening during this pandemic. You know, I mean, there has mm. been that kind of charge and so on. But I mean, the, the traditional thing is that luxury consumption would be a notion that seems to go with the Renaissance, you know? And so, so people are trying to put the pieces together and say, you know what, second half of the 14th century, yeah, maybe there are places where the economy wasn't so good, but Think of it as kind of an inversion of the economy, a reordering of the economy. Some people use the Schumpeterian language of creative destruction, you know, 
And what's happening is that maybe we have a conspicuous consumption that's reflected in, you know, visual things um, and, 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 and buying luxury goods. And maybe that's what Renaissance is all about. Um, Interesting. I'm not saying I agree with this, but I'm not saying it's a... No, Bill, the, an the answer is very uh, detailed and, and is a, an excellent spot to um, wrap up the conversation. Thank you for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge with everybody today. Thank you for having me, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. So again, everybody, the monograph that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Cafaro wrote, Petrarch's War, Florence and the Black Death in Context. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Bill and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.